0: Hello, and welcome to the Chonu Living Podcast. My name is Charlie, and I'm joined by a very special guest today who is recording this podcast with me from the United States of America. This is the first time I've recorded a transcontinental podcast, and I'm very excited to have this conversation with an old friend who has gone through a very interesting experience, to say the least. I'd love to introduce my friend Doug. What's up, Doug?
1: Hey, guys. How's it going, man? What's up?
0: So Doug, everyone in Chengdu, oh, everyone might be an overstatement, but a lot of people in Chengdu have been talking about you recently, I'm sure you know, because you have gone through such an incredible experience. First of all, tell me a little bit about yourself. Uh, what, in a word, what, what happened to you and, and what do you do in the States now? So
1: basically what happened was I came to Chengdu um, in August of 2017 to start studying Chinese at a language school. Um, essentially the short story was I was given a not fake visa but my documents were forged by a university that I never attended and I was put in a jail in Pichan for 28 days and pretty much did not pass go, did not collect $200, was taken straight from the jail to the airport and back to Atlanta uh, about 30 hours later
0: Okay. (laughs) So when you first got affiliated with this school, did you have the intention of becoming a full-time student or did you know that you would be going into some kind of gray area? Because I think a lot of listeners to this podcast will know that probably half or more of expats in China are probably in some kind of gray zone legally with their visa and this is common practice in China.
1: Oh, yeah. um, Yeah, I think... I can speak for myself and many other people and I think I would say a majority of us come over on the L visa and figure out something from there whether it be business or uh, work visa or student visa something like that so I did the name of the school is Mandarin Club in Tongzilin and going into it I was aware that it wasn't a university and I knew up front that it would be for six hours of class a week but To my knowledge, before I applied, it was good.
0: Right, actually Mandarin Club, I'm certain, I know people who studied there, I'm not sure if they had a student visa through Mandarin Club, but I do know that Mandarin Club was operating very successfully for a number of years. So when you got to the school, everything went fine, right? When did the problems kind of begin to emerge?
1: Uh, So what happened was, when I came back, I arrived in Chengdu around August 23rd I took three months off during the summer to come home and do some hiking and hang out with friends and things like that so I applied for the visa the X1 here in the states when I arrived back in Chengdu obviously I needed to get that upgraded to the residence permit um, the day after I arrived in Chengdu I went to Mandarin Club and I spoke with the boss of the school Tina who basically told me when I go to the PSB, she said, you need to lie about where you're studying. You need to tell them that you study in PCN five days a week. I said, are you sure that's okay? And at that point, I started feeling a little bit suspicious. And she said, don't worry about it. It's okay. And at that point, I had actually reached out to a couple of uh, older expats that I knew in the community to kind of brains and see like is this an okay gray area is this something that's going to come back to bite me in the ass later and the general consensus was you're good don't worry about it this kind of thing happens a lot in china a lot of these smaller schools will partner with universities to get their students the work visa or i'm sorry the student visa and they essentially act as the visa sponsor for the student and allowed the small school to actually teach the Chinese classes.
0: That's interesting. I'm not knowledgeable on student visas or the way that works with schools, but I do know that a lot of expats who are working here full-time in companies, many of them are on illegitimate visas. Mm-hmm. And a lot of them, maybe without their knowledge too, they think they're in the right, but they don't realize that they're not. And you know, nothing happens to the vast majority of them.
1: Yeah, and that's exactly it. I mean, with, uh, you know, I know plenty of people that had, like, business visas and things like that. Um, and the student visa seems to be a popular one. Um, I've heard, I don't know any agencies personally, but I've heard around China that there are agencies that essentially do the, kind of like what was happening in my situation. Uh, they'll get foreigners student visas but with absolutely no intention of studying whatsoever, they basically pay off the university to sell them a visa, or at least to sell them the paperwork to get the visa. And these agencies essentially act as a gateway into China to give people six to 12 month visas.
0: Right. You know, this is kind of, in a sense, the, sort of the way that China works. I mean, they're in the face of more rigid restrictions, Schools and organizations just find ways to bypass them and that inadvertently puts people like yourself at risk. Yep, exactly So you were at Mandarin Club you get the visa they instruct you to say this at the PSB you go and do that What happened next? How long did uh, you go before you ran into trouble again?
1: Okay, so let me rewind a bit. Yeah, so that was September went by no problem. I ended up picking up a part-time job um, then the National day holiday came around. Uh, a friend and I went hiking out in Chuanzang and like western Sichuan for a week. When we came back, I'm trying to remember exactly the day, I believe it was October 11th or October 10th. Um, actually a friend of mine that you know, we both know Alan, uh, who's also from Birmingham. Um, originally I had been staying at his house when I had first come back to Chengdu. Um, he gave me a place to crash for a few weeks until I found an apartment. So I had initially done the residence registration you know when you go to the police station and you just have to give them your lease and all of that stuff sure. Um, I had originally registered at his house right when I moved to my new apartment I forgot to do it. Um, so Alan called me one night and said, hey the police just showed up looking for you and I'm like at first I'm like what the hell what what are you talking about? And then it hit me, I was like, oh, shit, I forgot to register. So Hmm. I'm thinking, okay, well, I'm just going to have to go pay a fine and just get everything updated, no problem. Um, So he had given them my phone number, so I was just going to uh, basically wait until they called me. So the next day, I went to the police station and I registered my new apartment, no problem. Um, But later that afternoon, I got a phone call from an officer at the PSB. And he said, uh, you're going to need to come in at 9 a.m. the next day, or tomorrow. Uh, We have some questions we need to ask you. I said, okay, sure, no problem. Um, At that point, I started to, I put a couple of pieces together, and I was thinking, okay, maybe this has something to do with uh, Mandarin Club, or maybe, I don't know. So I ended up calling Tina, who was the boss of Mandarin Club at the time, and I told her what was going on and she said oh don't worry about it this is just some problem with the guanxi between pcn and the psb just keep your story the same tell them you go to pcn five days a week and everything should be okay wow so it's starting to get intense (laughs) at this point you know like i was thinking you know this is probably going to burn out and simmer um because I, I, after that interview I had talked to people again I kind of consulted a couple of the older expats that I knew and they said you know generally speaking with this kind of thing the police are just going around they're kind of checking in the corners and just basically look like they're doing something Um You know, if it were a big problem, they would have already, like, pulled you aside and things like that, or they would have come to your school and arrested people or whatever. So at this point, I wasn't really concerned. I figured, okay, I'll just lie again and things will probably go all right. Um, But interestingly enough, during that first interview, I didn't really put these pieces together at the time until later on. They were asking me more about Tina. During the interview, they asked me a little bit about, uh, you know, they said, where do you study? I said, Pixian. I go there five days a week. They said, well, you live in, uh, at the time I was living in Fangcao, right? Yep. Close to the Yulin neighborhood, where, uh, anyways, um, they were asking me about, you know, you live here, so how do you get to Pixian? And I was like, well, I take a metro and then I jump on a mo bike once I get to Shipu." And I just made all this shit up, you know, yep. I, I basically just like looked on Baidu maps the morning before just to like have an idea because i would never been to the school. I had no idea like what it looked like or anything like that. Right. So I gave them the story. They seemed to buy it. Um, they and then they asked her and me questions about Tina. They said, well, where is because I mentioned that I also study at Mandarin Club and they said well who is tina is she involved with pcn is she work there and i said i mean i don't really know i know that she's the boss of mandarin club uh, maybe she has some friends that work at the pcn university i'm not sure exactly how this is involved and they said well how did you get your visa i said she pretty much did all the paperwork for me which she did she did basically filled out the application and got the i guess cover acceptance letter from the university mm-hmm. Um, she did all of that stuff for me, sent it to the EOS when I applied in the summer. Um, so anyways, um, they kept asking me about her, and the next day I went back to Mandarin Club to go to classes, and I kind of told her what was going on. And she just didn't seem worried about it. She said, oh, it's okay, this will blow over in a couple of weeks. So that was the first interview. That was around the middle of October, I guess around the 12th
0: so then a couple weeks passed
1: yeah so following that basically things settled back down I kind of had this gut feeling that something might be happening I didn't listen to it at the time I had a good job going on I had a new girlfriend that I was spending time with you know life was kind of getting stable again and I was just not worrying about it at all Um, and I hadn't heard anything from anyone else and you know talking to other people they said you know this is generally what happens they'll interview you one time and then pretty much it drops away so then on if I remember correctly it was the last day of October, no no it was November 1st that I was called back for a second interview and at that point I the day before I tried to get in touch with Tina I actually had her personal cell phone number I called multiple times uh, text message WeChat nothing went through. Nothing. I could not get a hold of her for anything. None of the teachers at Mandarin Club had seen her. None of the students. She'd gone missing. Wow. Okay. So, yeah. So that was when I kind of started realizing I might be on my own from here out. So,
0: Did you assume at that point
1: that she had been
0: apprehended as well?
1: I I was thinking she might have booked it to Thailand. That was my first thought. She might have fled or she might have gone back to her hometown and was just laying low. Um, right. I didn't think about it too critically, but until after the fact, obviously. Basically, for the second round of interviews, um, it was me and nine, about nine other foreigners, 10 other foreigners. And these were people I did not, I'd never met them before. I think most of them were newbies in Chengdu because I'd never seen them out and about anywhere. Um, mm-hmm. So we were all brought to the PSB downtown, close to the Mao statue, and then we were put in squad cars in groups of three and driven to the police station in Tongzilin. And we pretty much spent the entire day there having our turns taken to be interviewed by the investigators that were there. And in the waiting room for those of us who weren't being interviewed, we quickly started putting the pieces together that all of us were somehow involved in one way or another with this university in Pishan. Mm. I was involved with Mandarin Club. Each of them were all through different agencies or different, you know, other, how how would you say that, language schools? Um, I don't know any of the other ones in Chengdu.
0: Sure, so like illegitimate visa providers, essentially.
1: Yeah, essentially, yeah. So... We were all related to PCN somehow. And when my, ta- when my turn came up for the interview, I was one- I think I was the last one because I think they interviewed me right around 4 p.m. or something like that. So I'd been sitting there all day just like bored out of my mind and just talking with other people and trying to figure out what was going on. Um, so when they came up, I started to lie again. And then... They told me during the interview that Tina had been detained along with one of her colleagues at PCN University. And at that point I knew it was up and I just pretty much opened up, I said I've been lying, I was following the instructions of Tina because she was the boss of my school, she was the one that helped me get the visa. And uh, <laughs> this was all going on in English. They had an interpreter there. Right. So the interpreter says this to the officer, and he looks up, and his eyes are about the size of dinner plates. And he goes, oh, you're going to jail tonight. And I just thought, oh, shit, what have I done? What have I gotten myself into? So they, they're they madly clacking away on the computer, and they're firing off at each other in Sichuan Hua really fast so that I couldn't really keep up with what they were saying. Um, but pretty much... Yeah, I was the only person that got detained that day, and it was because I had lied during that first interview. That was the sole reason for me getting shipped off to jail. Had I told the truth the first time, um, I think the fate... um, Well, let me think. I've gotten in touch with some of the people that I met that day, and pretty much all of them were given 30 days to leave China. So I was the only person from that group that was detained the rest of them were let off for telling
0: the truth. I see. So I guess the lesson there, correct me if I'm wrong, is don't listen to someone from a school or an employer that instructs you to lie to the police when you're being interrogated.
1: It's a risk. I mean, you might get away with it and they might not pursue it any further. Or if they catch you, they're immediately going to assume that you're the one committing the fraud and they're going to incarcerate you. Right. Um. So really, you know, Yeah, I would highly recommend, don't lie, just say the truth. The worst that's gonna happen is they make you leave, and you can just get another visa. All of those people that I talked to uh, were told by the police they were allowed to apply for another visa.
0: So those people came, came clean in their first interview, and then somehow they were brought in for a second interview, is that correct?
1: No, all of these people, from what I understood talking to them, were all in their first interview. I was the only one that was there for my second.
0: I see I see okay that makes sense yeah. okay so the police officer tells you you're going to jail tonight and what happens then this is in the afternoon oh
1: yeah yeah this was yeah right around the evening it was starting to get dark outside so um, I started firing off messages on WeChat I told my boss of the high school that I was working at at the time what was going on I contacted my girlfriend I talked contacted just I was letting everyone know I got in touch with my dad back in the States just to give him a heads up um, I spoke to Alan, the guy we were talking about earlier, let him know, um, yep. and, and I started thinking, I was like, maybe I can run out of here, but uh, turns out, the I think the reason why they brought us to the center in Tongzellin, it was kind of like a, I wouldn't call it like a jail, but there were bars on all of the windows and there was an electronically locked gate um, for us to get out in and out of the building so there was no way i could have grabbed anything and run they had my passport by that point
0: wow did you have did you have an escape plan in mind
1: not initially i should have come into it thinking that but they took our passports that morning at the psb so uh it was you know i wouldn't have been able to you know right if they got your passport so, that's it
0: <laughs> that's it yeah exactly game over so you're there mm-hmm. waiting and what happens then so i had about a
1: 10 minute window to make those phone calls um and i was just messing with my phone uh the police didn't seem too concerned about it at that point they were busy finishing up another interview that had been going on for a while and then the investigator that had been on my case uh he didn't speak english but he comes out to me and i'm doing the china squad out in the hallway just you know messaging people smoking cigarettes in the building And he sits down, Mm -hmm. and he pulls up a chair, and in Chinese, he starts talking to me. He's like, you know, you lied to us. You know, why did you do that? And I said, well, to be honest, I was just following the instructions. I was scared. I didn't want to leave Chengdu. I I love my life here. And he's like, well, you know, you're going to be in a lot of trouble for this. And I said, I know, I know, but I'm willing to cooperate at this point. I'm not going to lie anymore. And he just shook his head and said, you better not. And then... Got up and uh, about ten minutes later, he rallied up the rest of the police, and they drove me. They basically went out to the parking lot, and we got. Have you seen those minivans, like the police minivans around? We got in one of those, so we were all crammed in that thing, probably about six or seven officers with the translator and myself, and we drove to. A police station out in P- i guess it was Chipu or and it was pretty far it took i don't know how long it was because by this point they'd taken my backpack and made me remove everything from my pockets and put it in my backpack so i didn't have a watch on or anything um i imagine it was about an hour mm-hmm. so we got out there and we got to the police station and they were, I guess, going back to their vehicles to go home or, like, doing some paperwork for my proceedings or something like that. So I was just kind of hanging out in the parking lot with the interpreter. We were just chatting a little bit. He was actually a really nice guy. He, I think he'd studied in uh, the U.K. He had a bit of a British accent. Um, but we were, like, making jokes. I was like, you ever been to jail before? And he was just like, nope, nope. Ah, sure, can't say I haven't. Um, and at that point... The There were two investigators on my case that I spoke to for the next three days. Um, I don't remember their Chinese names, but I gave them the nicknames uh, Kim Jong-un and Skinny because uh, one of the guys was pretty big and looked like uh, our friend over in North Korea. <laughs> and the other gentleman was an older guy that looked like a skeleton. He was so thin. Um, so anyways, Skinny comes up to me out in the parking lot I'm smoking a cigarette chatting with the interpreter and he's like are you going to cooperate with us now I said yes you know whatever you need to know I'll let you know so then he started digging for information about where the tuition I had paid was going so I pulled out my phone I had ended up paying Tina half of the tuition um, in May when I was still in Chengdu on my work visa so I showed him the 3,000 quai receipt And I told him that the rest of the tuition, which was, I think, $2,800, was paid in cash and that I didn't have a receipt for it. Um, And then they wanted to look through my conversations with Tina. So I just said, all right, well, I'll do that. So I popped open my phone. At this point, I was starting to get a little bit nervous uh, because I hadn't told them that I was working anywhere, which, as you know, is illegal to do when you're on a student visa. So I'm thinking, Oh no, I don't want them going through my, all of my WeChat. I'll let them look at, you know, what I want them to see, but I don't know if they're just going to take my phone at any moment and, you know, just take control of it. Right. Right. Um, but turn, they just were looking to see what we'd been talking about. And it was mainly, you know, like what I had been telling them. I have had spoken with Tina asking for advice about how to deal with the, the police interviews. Um, and then after that, they got me back in a smaller squad car with the two investigators, the interpreter, and another officer. Um, they had fed me lunch earlier that day, but by this point it was getting close to about 10 o'clock at night, and I was pretty hungry. So they they actually pulled over at a uh, Hongqi and bought me a loaf of bread and a, a thing of milk, and I was like, oh, thanks, guys, cool, all right. So I was <laughs> sitting in the back of the squad car. Bread
0: and milk. It's the universal Westerner dinner.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, thats they know where we hit home, right? Um, So I start munching on that, and then uh, we get back in the car, and we drive for probably about another 20 minutes. And, Charlie, when I mean we were in the countryside, like I didn't realize that there were areas like in China that had like forests and trees and no people like we were in the middle of nowhere i'm looking out the window and it's nighttime and i just see trees and fields i'm thinking what the hell where the hell am i right now and we finally
0: yeah far outside the we're, city
1: we're, yeah we're out there and so we finally pull up to this large uh the prison we pull up to the large concrete structure and uh, they honk the horn bring us in um and then they take me inside to the lobby and do all of the registration. They make me sign a bunch of paperwork that I can't understand. Uh, thankfully, the in-
0: Did you know how long you were going there for, or did they in- tell you what was happening?
1: They, so When they brought me into the lobby, they told me that I was being charged with visa fraud, and I was suspected of working illegally. They said that the visa fraud charge would have me in there for 30 days. Um, now, with that being said, the officer told me that the main reason I was in Was because I had lied to them He said if I cooperated And I spoke the truth That I would probably be released very quickly And if they found out I was still lying I could be in there much longer In his words
0: Got it yeah. But the original sentence was 30 days Right, so you go through registration And then what happens?
1: Uh, after that, they uh, my investigators Waved me goodbye And they, uh, they took all my stuff I had to take my Belt and shoelaces off. I guess they didn't want me trying to strangle anybody or myself, which would make sense. And they opened the. This is a pretty, like, I guess, like a vault door would be the way to describe it. They opened that, which opened up into, like, a courtyard with the individual cells. There were 30 of them in that jail. Um, And there was another fence that kind of contained all of those cells that had barbed wire running on the top. They opened that door, and they took me back behind all of the cells to a supply room. They gave me some pretty heavy, like, military-grade blankets, um, a Tupperware, and a spoon, I guess, for eating at some point. And uh, they took me to cell number six, and when I walked in, I guess it was about 11 o'clock at night, and there were five other guys in there, all of them uh, local Sichuan people, and they were all taking a nap, of course, until I walked in and their eyes all got massive because I think, you know, they didn't expect a foreigner to come trotting on into their cell. Um, So I pull up at uh, bunk number four and surprisingly, I was super tired and I think at at that time it was kind of a novel experience. I was thinking to myself, oh, I've never been to jail before. This is kind of cool, you know? Like, (laughs) as crazy as it sounds, I just thought... You know, This will go over, I'll tell them the truth And I'll be up on my way back to America and No problem So at that point I was kind of uh, Just like okay cool, let's see what happens
0: Yep, understandable So in the cell, they're not individual cells You're in a cell, there are 30 cells you mentioned And you're in number 6 And you share that with other people, you're in a bunk bed Is that right?
1: Uh, not bunk beds, but there are individ- 6 individual Bunks that are lined up against the wall
0: Okay, so you share The cell with 6 other people Five including me. Okay, five including you. So, are yeah. so all these cells? There's like dozens of people in this little courtyard area, which you describe, right? They're they're all Chinese, presumably. There's zero other foreigners there, right? Yeah. So immediately when you arrived there, what was the feeling like? How were you received? Were people shocked to see you? Were they surprised? Were they friendly? Were they hostile? What was the kind of vibe like among the other people there?
1: The guards seemed a little bit shocked, but. They were also pretty irritated because it was 11.30 at night, and I think some of them might have been taking a nap. Um, My cellmates, when I walked in, uh, most of them were uh, pretty friendly. They seemed very shocked, but um, we tried to communicate a little bit, but uh, most of them couldn't speak uh, Putonghua or Mandarin very well, Um, and my Sichuanhua is very, very limited, so there was a bit of a language barrier between us. But they were friendly. They were very nice. Um, maybe the of the first guys that I met, half of them seemed like pretty chill guys, just in there on probably nonviolent charges, and the other half a uh, little bit rougher. They had some uh, obviously been in some fighting. They had bruises on their faces and arms and stuff, cut
0: marks. So, but all in all, they were very friendly. So you arrive in the evening and you have this kind of feeling of excitement. You've never been in this situation before. You know, you'll be fine in the end. When you kind of wake up the next day and are looking at day number two, did your mindset change, and what was that day like? At that point, on day two, not quite.
1: Um, I don't think the <laughs> the experience had totally settled in yet, but it was still pretty novel. I was kind of trying to chat with some of the other cell mates. I was kind of learning about some of the there's a lot of culture that's uh that goes on in jails and i was kind of trying to pick up on that and you know just kind of work around basically my environment at that point um and actually that next day the investigators came back for another interview um because they needed to gather more information now that i was telling the truth um And so by the time that interview rolled around that afternoon, I was starting to go into shock. I was like, this is real. I want to get the hell out of here, and I'm going to tell these guys whatever the hell they want to know
0: so that I can go home. Right. You mentioned a moment ago the culture of the jail. Can you describe what that is?
1: So (laughs) I'll give you, like, an example. So, you know, we were basically working together to hide things from the guards because our cell basically had two cameras there were two closed-circuit cameras um, in each cell one facing the door and one facing the the wash area Um, and so kinda to back this up a little bit every Tuesday Wednesday Thursday and Friday at 9 a.m. after breakfast the guards would come into our cell and they would shake us down Um, look through all of our stuff to make sure we weren't hiding anything like knives or, you know, illicit materials. And they would let us out for five minutes to smoke. They would actually give us each a cigarette, uh, light us up. And we'd have five minutes to kind of just chat with each other and hang out outside before we spent the rest of the day back in our cell. Hmm. Um, So the guys in my cell had snuck a lighter in and they were hiding it inside the toilet paper uh, I guess it was like one of those like toilet paper packets you get at WoWo. Right. Um, not the one with the hollow cardboard insert, but just like a regular packet. Yep. So they were hiding uh, the cigarette in there. And when we would go out to smoke, they would bring our, our garbage bucket, I guess. We had like a little bucket we would throw garbage in. They would bring that out as like a big ashtray. And they would basically release all of the cells at once. So, essentially, we'd have all of the prisoners out there, and they would use our garbage bucket as their ashtray. And not all of them would finish their cigarettes. So, once they, the guards told us to go back into our cell, we would have a bucket just jam-packed full of, you know, halfway smoked cigarettes. And we'd basically, one of the guys in there would grab them, uh, roll them up in toilet paper real quick, and then shove them back inside the uh, toilet paper packet... Uh, to kind of stash them, and then basically throughout the day, we'd just go back there and like take one or two hits, whatever was left on it, um, when the guards weren't watching, um, and one of the ways we did that, so when I was talking a bit about the culture, it's like we'd watch each other's backs, right, so we knew if we got caught doing this, we were going to get seriously fucked, pardon my French, um, but we could be facing longer jail time and stuff like that, so... It was interesting seeing that because the area behind the bathroom, if you can imagine, kind of had a glass wall um, that you could see through pretty easily. But we would essentially sit or lean up against the glass wall so that whoever was taking their turn smoking could hide beneath it, hide back there, and smoke without being seen by the camera. And it just looked like maybe he was back there washing his dishes or brushing his teeth or something like that. So there was this very, like... Tight knit sense of community in there, this brotherhood. Um, And to kind of continue that, we would, when I showed up, I actually didn't have any clothes. It was basically the end of October, or no, it was November 1st, and it was a warm day in Chengdu that day, so I didn't have a jacket or anything. I was just wearing a pair of jeans and a long sleeve shirt, and it started getting cold really fast, as you probably know in the month of November in Chengdu. It can get some pretty chilly nights. Yep, um, And the guys took care of me, man. The, I, they literally gave me the clothes off their back. We, uh, One of the guys had an extra jacket that he gave to me. And, um, you know, of course, you know, it was just like this sense of brotherhood. And I returned the favor when I left. I had the clothes, all the clothes that were given to me um, during my stay in jail. I passed them on to the people that were in there. And, uh, you know, we just took care of each other because we were basically all in there together and we didn't really have a choice we just had to uh take care you know
0: yeah that's amazing that sounds like a really wonderful thing to have to have people looking out for you in that you know scary uncertain situation did you ever feel threatened or or in danger not only from hostile people but from anything else there
1: um i ended up getting sick um probably around day 15 or 16 and uh I, it was probably the sickest I've ever been in my life, and you probably know how Chinese doctors tend to do things. They'll tell you to drink more hot water and give you a dose of antibiotics to cure pretty much everything. Um, and that wasn't working, and I was running fevers multiple times a day for about a week, and I was pretty scared. I was thinking, you know, they're not listening to me, and at that point when I would go to visit the infirmary, the doctors there, of course, didn't speak English. So trying to explain to them that the symptoms I was having uh, was pretty difficult. And, you know, just the language barrier made it difficult to get the proper treatment.
0: Wow, yeah, that is scary.
1: So at that point, that was probably probably the biggest threat that I faced in there. Um, some of the guards were assholes, but I think that's to be expected. Um, in terms of my cellmates, I didn't really feel threatened by any of them at all. They were all really... For the most part, really good guys. Some of them were quite stupid, but none of them I considered dangerous.
0: <laughs> Can you describe what a what an average day was like there? So you, you what time do you wake up? You know, what is breakfast like? Kind of how does a, a normal day in a Chinese jail go? So basically we would wake up at
1: six thirty AM on the dot. Now keep in mind there's no clocks. In the cells, so you never knew exactly what time it was, other than certain cues and milestones that you would have throughout the day. Um, And there was a schedule posted that roughly told you when things would happen. Like it would say six thirty, wake up. uh, Seven o'clock, breakfast comes, so on and so forth. So six thirty, the most obnoxious horn would blast our cell rooms. I mean, I don't. And I was amazed that people could sleep through it. I had some cellmates that would literally sleep through the entire 120 seconds that it played. I would be up and pacing in the first three seconds. Like it would knock me out of bed straight up. So we wake up at six thirty, make our beds, brush teeth, you know, do whatever you gotta do. Um, and then breakfast would come at seven AM, and that generally consisted of rice with salted cabbage or pickled cabbage something like that um and then that was they would also bring in uh, we'd fill up a bucket of hot water for drinking and then once we were finished with breakfast we had a basically two hour period until 9 a.m to just kind of clean the cell which when i mean clean the cell i mean you would basically sweep the floor with your shoes because we weren't giving any cleaning, we weren't given any cleaning equipment other than some terry cloths. Mm-hmm. Um, so we'd basically just kind of do that. Uh, generally speaking, the guards would come around eight a.m. and we had a small TV in our cell above the front window that was close to the door. So they'd come around eight a.m. and kick that on, and it would be it was CCTV nine and. Half the shows were anti-Japanese World War II propaganda shows, and the other half were—I don't—I don't even know—just like life in the days of Mao or something. I'm not sure exactly.
0: But. <laughs> right, period pieces. Yeah, it's general CCTV stuff. Yeah, yeah.
1: If you've seen CCTV, you know what I'm talking about. So, anyways, uh, 9 a.m. would roll around. Uh, we would go, and they would announce on the intercom that the in the, uh, uh, sorry, they would announce that the guards are coming to do a shakedown um, so we'd go and stand against the wall, the guards would come in they'd pat us down, check our pockets uh, I had long hair at the time they'd like go through my ponytail the first day that I had it um, and then they'd just search our bodies, then they would go and look through our bedding they'd look underneath our beds they'd check by the bath area and if the cleanliness uh was approved by them we were allowed to go outside for five minutes and smoke and at this point we were allowed to chat with uh people from other cells so this was like the one time we got to socialize and see like who was new who were the guys that had just come in the night before
0: that morning and kind of just chat with each other is there any fish equivalent in chinese jail like hazing newbies no or are people generally treated pretty well
1: no, they just, yeah, we've just generally, like, chatted with each other. I think the guards in China, now, I haven't been to jail in America, so I can't really compare it. And I was also in a jail, which is basically minor infractions. All of us had days of, uh, or all of us had sentences of 30 days or less. Yep. Um, so I don't think there was enough time to really develop that kind of, that level of culture that you see, like, on uh, American films and TV shows in our prison system. Mm-hmm. But no, I mean, generally, it was just, like, we'd go out in the yard and just kind of, like, chat with each other and just, you know, introduce ourselves or, like, talk about, like, what we were going to do when we get out. It was a very friendly atmosphere, I would say, for the most part, uh, between the the cellmates that were there, the other prisoners. Yep. So once that was over, once we'd finished our cigarettes, we would go back in our room and basically sit around until 11.30... And 11.30 was when lunch would come. And lunch typically consisted of, you guessed it, more rice, um, more cabbage. And this time they would usually, no, they always would cook it in some kind of pepper oil. I guess it's, it's probably would be the equivalent of like great value Lao or something like that. Like it was just a horrible flavored cooking mm-hmm. sauce. Um. So we would get that cooked with cabbage, and sometimes they'd throw in a little bit of the five-flour pork, like two or three pieces. And, uh, yeah, they'd pour that and make, like, a, a covered rice dish in our bowl, and we'd just munch on that.
0: So every day it's the same meal, right? so the same meal It was right?
1: the same uh, seasoning. Um, they would change it up on a daily basis, like maybe one day it's cabbage and potatoes Like uh, one day a week, they would do potatoes, cabbage and potatoes. Then the next day, it'd be cabbage and tofu. Next day, it would be cabbage Mm -hmm. and cabbage. Maybe the next day is cabbage and pork. So they would switch it up a little bit. But the flavoring was essentially the same. It got to a point where I was like, I can't eat this shit. (laughs) I was basically eating it out of pure necessity. Right. Um, So, following lunch, um, basically at 12 o'clock, we would redeploy our sleeping gear. And we would take a nap for two hours or in my case, I was actually just kind of I didn't I wasn't good at taking naps So I would just kind of like stare at the ceiling and meditate or try to like, you know, think about some other stuff and Then uh, after 2 p.m.. They set the alarm off again to wake us up we'd get up and put our bedding back and They'd kick the TV back on and we would just kind of hang out and watch TV for basically three more hours uh, three and a half hours dinner would come at five thirty, and dinner was pretty much always the same as lunch it would be whatever was left over that the cook had made at lunch and we'd munch on that mm-hmm. six o'clock rolled around we would redeploy our bedding equipment and they would keep the tv on until 10 p.m most of the time so we'd but we had to be in our beds at that point so for four hours, we were just kind of laying on our bunks. You could sleep. You could, you know, if you brought a book with you or something like that, you could read it um, or you could just watch TV or whatever. So
0: so you can bring a book with you. Uh,
1: yeah. So some of my cellmates, they had friends come and deliver them stuff like clothes and books. Um, one guy had f- actually got food brought to him, but he wasn't just allowed to eat it when he wanted. They had to bring it out from the kitchen with his meals. But, yeah, so Mm -hmm. they didn't have any. I I think I know what you're going to ask next. Did they have English books? Um, They did not have English books. Um, Actually, I had my textbooks with me in my backpack when I was arrested. And uh, on the second day when I was in jail, they let me go up to the lobby and get my books. So I at least had something to do other than watch TV that I didn't understand.
0: Hmm. So after you finish, after you finish dinner, what, what happens then? Is it more TV?
1: Yeah, it was just TV. Yeah, from 6 p.m. until 10 p.m. for four hours, we just watched TV or we could read. We just had to be in our beds. We weren't allowed to be up walking
0: around um, the cell at that point. So there was aside from the five minutes outside to smoke, there's really kind of no exercise or activity, really not much movement in a normal day, right? oh no not at all we were allowed
1: basically during the daytime we were allowed to walk around the cell and i i kid you not i probably walked about 300 miles in the 28 days that i was there because i would just it's so boring in there and we just basically we would be in single file basically walking circles from the door back to the bathing area back to the door back to the bathing area and that's kind of the only exercise we were allowed to do. I actually tried doing a bit of yoga and some push-ups and some other simple things like that, and they would come on the intercom, foreigner, foreigner, quit exercising, and yell at me uh, when I did that. So, really? Yeah. They, so I learned pretty quick. I was like, oh, okay, those are my no-nos, just walking. Okay, got it, got it.
0: Wow, that's, that sounds like a serious restriction and not be able to do push-ups or yoga. Yeah. Yep. Can you describe what the cell was like? You mentioned that there were five of you, including yourself, mm. so presumably five beds there. Um, what else was in the cell? Can you describe the size of it? What, what was inside there?
1: Yeah, sure. Um, I, I'm sorry, I messed up. I meant five people plus me, so it was actually six beds total. Um, so there were six bunks, uh, no mattresses on them. They were essentially a piece of plywood with a steel frame on it. Um, there were six of these lined against one wall. The door was made of basically like a steel vault inner door, and there was a electronically controlled gate on the outside of that. So even if you were somehow could open the inner door, you'd still have to figure out how to open the electronic gate. Um, there was a small window by the door that had a mesh over it, so there's no way you could break the glass or stick anything through there. Um, Our beds, the six of them going back towards the back of the cell, the opposite side from the door, was our bathing area, and there were basically like two... The bathing area was kind of split into two small sections. The section in the back left corner is what I presumed used to be the shower area, but due to security reasons or not being able to see back there or watch us on the cameras, they probably... It looks like they ripped out the shower head and moved it to the right uh, close to where the toilet was. And the camera was actually pointing at that corner of the cell. So I think that was why they moved it. So anyways, in the back right corner of the cell uh, there was a sink that only had a cold water tap. There was a hose coming out of the wall that ran hot water uh, twice a month that we could use for showering. And then a typical squatty potty like you see everywhere else in China. Um, mm. And there was a, a glass wall that basically divided the bathing area and the sleeping area. And on that glass wall, we you know we'd store like our basically like our cooking stuff. We st- or not our cooking stuff, our eating stuff after we washed it. Uh, toilet paper, toothpaste, toothbrushes, extra water bottles, stuff like that. Right. That was like our common area, more or less.
0: I see, I see. So you go through life here, you go through this routine day by day. How long do you go before something changes? So I would say
1: the biggest change was on day eight, and that was when I met William. I was uh, sitting, it was after I'd taken my cigarette break that day. No, that wasn't a cigarette day, that was a Monday. So we didn't. we weren't allowed to smoke on Mondays. So I was just sitting by the window looking out, just kind of enjoying the view and uh, the yard there there is some birds that came in sometimes and a group of prisoners walked by sometimes the guards will take prisoners out to do chores and stuff like that so that wasn't too surprising and then I'm looking out the window and I see a western person walk by and he looks right at me in the eyes and we just made eye contact and just locked it we couldn't talk to each other because the window was closed and we wouldn't have been able to hear, hear each other But we both had this expression of just complete shock. Like, what are you doing here? Um, (laughs) And that was a very, very big change after that. Um, The next day when we went out into the yard to smoke, I found out that this guy was actually in the exact situation I was. He was also at Mandarin Club and had done the exact same thing that I had done with the police. He lied for the first interview, ended up telling the truth later, and then was... uh, Arrested and taken to this jail
0: Wow So were you able to Meet him Talk to him Interact with him
1: We got to talk to each other For those five minutes In the morning When we were allowed to smoke So we quickly Over the course of a few days Were able to figure out That we were in the same boat And figure out That our investigators Were the same people And that we were essentially He was able to relay A lot more information to me um, About my case as well Because he asked them about what was going on in my situation. Um, after day three, my investigators stopped coming to me altogether for they had gotten all the questions they wanted and they just disappeared. So I didn't know what was going on with my case. but for some reason, they kept coming back to him and asking him more and more questions and uh, basically trying to figure out what he because he had a little bit of a different story going on. Um, he had gotten his visa through Mandarin Club. But uh, Unlike me who was working at a high school at the time He was doing a lot of freelance work and so the police were trying to figure out what work he was doing Um, So I think they were a little bit more interested in him in that regard,
0: right? Okay So after you meet William then presumably you're kind of getting close to getting out of the situation, right? How does it how does your time in the jail start to conclude
1: so from day eight basically uh, from that point onward like I said my investigators pretty much disappeared up until day 26 day, 20, no, or day 25 I'm trying to remember exactly it was around day 25 when my investigators actually ended up coming back and they informed me that you're going to be getting released now we just have to be doing a little bit of extra paperwork and we gotta figure out where we're going to send you um, initially right. when they on day 25 they came by and they said well uh, you're going to have to pay for your plane ticket where are we sending you we're going to buy the ticket and then you'll have to pay us back in addition to a 5,000 RMB fine for working illegally um, so I said send me to Atlanta that's the closest place to where I live I can get some family to catch me um, and my investigators say no we can't send you to Atlanta there's no direct flights there we can send you to New York or we can send you to Los, uh, San Francisco because those are direct flights from Chengdu. Right. And I said, well, that's fine. You can do that, but you need to let me go back to my apartment to get my things because my American credit cards are there, all of my cash, pretty much all of the money I have is in that apartment. And they're like, well, we're sorry we can't do that. You know, you're know, you going to have to uh, figure out something else. I was like, what the hell are you talking about? Like, That's everything I own. At this point, I started to panic a bit because, you know, I everything I have is in Chengdu. I had been arrested with 600 RMB in my pocket and my bank card from my job before, and that was it. Everything else I had, my computer, everything I owned was in that apartment in Chengdu. Right. Um, so I was panicking. I didn't know what to do. And they said, well, you're going to have to call a good friend and get them to bring your stuff to you. I was like, okay, all right. Well, when are you going to let me do that? They said, uh, the day before you fly out. And I'm like, okay, so where are you going to fly me out then? they said, well, we can fly you to Hong Kong for free if you want. And then you can figure out where to go from there. And I said, well, that's even worse. Like, if my friend can't get me my stuff, you know, what am I going to do? How am I going to be able to get home? I'm going to be a homeless guy in Hong Kong bumming around, you know? Yep. And um, so they said, don't panic. Don't worry about it. And I spent the whole weekend, you know, thinking about that and when they came back on Monday that next day they said alright well we got you a ticket to Atlanta um, tomorrow you'll be able to call a friend who can bring your stuff to you now keep in mind up at this point I had not been able to use my phone I did not know anything I'd been completely in the dark with everything that was going on in Chengdu and with my personal contacts so basically the morning before they flew me back they took me up to the lobby of the jail and said all right now's your chance you can call someone to see if they can get your stuff and bring it to you so the first person i called was alan yep and because he was one of the last people that i had spoken to before going in and he said that he might be holding my things while i was in there so I get in touch with Alan and Alan says I've already got your stuff packed just uh, tell me where to go and I'll come bring it to you so he and my roommate at the time did me just the massive favor just absolutely saved me they brought my stuff out to the jail that night uh, with uh, 12 hours to go before I flew out back to the states Um, and so I was able to recover pretty much everything I got all of it back. And, uh, the next morning they took me to the airport and they had my ticket ready to go. And then I just, uh, took
0: off. What was your feeling when you were heading out of there? Did you feel that after spending 25 or 28 days, whatever it was there that you had kind of adjusted to life there? Um, were you really eager, or anxious to get out? Were you, were you grateful? Were you angry? What was your feeling when you were leaving?
1: oh man I was so thankful I was so incredibly thankful to get out of there I was so grateful I felt you know bad for some of the guys I'd met in there because I'd met you know some of the cellmates I had um on the last week that I was there we'd really connected and um just you know become good friends I'm actually to this day I'm still in touch with some of my cellmates I had scratched my phone number on the wall um in the cell with my fingernails so they were able to look me up afterwards and we've Kept in chat, uh, kept in ch- uh, kept in touch over WeChat. Um, so yeah, it was definitely I was ready to go though. I did not want to spend another minute in that place. Um, but at the airport and on the airplane, once we boarded, I was definitely heartbroken to leave Chengdu because I had really come to love that city, and it was just such a shame that I had to leave that all behind after you know kind of establishing myself there and. Uh, making a life for myself there you know
0: do you know what happened to tina and mandarin club
1: from what the investigators told me she is currently incarcerated and i got the feeling that she won't be released for a long time and that's the last that i've heard about it
0: so presumably no new students at mandarin club will be in your situation
1: right now believe it or not mandarin club is still running from what i understand um i've talked to a couple of friends that are still over there and they said that things are still going um but yeah just that tina's not there or involved and that was kind of strange to me because i thought that she was the boss of the school that she was the one running it um but allegedly that's not the case
0: right so after you leave china what's your status uh with china can you come back will you come back is that something you're interested in at all um what, what are your feelings on china at this point
1: so, like a, uh, like a lot of the gray areas we were discussing earlier, uh, this ordeal continues to be a gray area. Um, one thing I forgot to mention was a U.N. officer actually came on the case the last couple of days. I was in jail to register me with the uh, Interpol. And he told me, when I asked him, you know, what the status was for returning to China, he said, it's going to be at the discretion of the Chinese embassy. That's not up for us to decide. So when you get back to the States, you will need to contact them. He said it could be anywhere from one month to 10 years. It's completely at their discretion. Mm -hmm. Uh, So when I got back, I ended up calling the... So I live in Alabama, and our Chinese embassy is in Houston. So I ended up calling them uh, actually like a week or two ago, and... I explained what my situation was, why I had been arrested and all of these things and why my visa was canceled. And basically the answer I got was you can go ahead and apply for a visa. Um, but you will just want to make sure that you put in like a cover letter explaining why you got arrested and what your situation was mm-hmm. for why your visa got canceled. And, uh, last time you were in China and they said, uh, maybe we'll give it to you. Maybe we won't. And I, so that's what I understand at this point is essentially I'll have to spend uh, two or three hundred dollars to find out if I can go back. And uh, frankly, at this point, I'm looking into other places at the moment. I'm looking for work here in the States, just trying to get back on my feet and uh, eyeing Taiwan in a couple of years.
0: Great. Um, you mentioned previously, not in this conversation, um, about the U.S. consulate. Did you, did you contact the consulate? Were they able to provide any help or what what happened there
1: oh yeah that's a that's a good question um the u.s consulate did come on day five um after i'd finished the last uh the last of the four interviews um they came to the jail and they basically told me that they had absolutely no legal power whatsoever they were unable to provide any kind of legal assistance Especially in this case, because this was a visa issue, strictly. Um, I wasn't allowed to contact an attorney or a lawyer, according to Chinese law. I was entirely at the discretion of the police that were on my case. Uh, The only thing that the American embassy can offer you, or the American consulate can offer, when you are incarcerated in a foreign country is that they are able to relay messages back and forth between people back home family or friends in the US um, and I actually had a senator that was the senator of Alabama that was um, had heard about my case so I sent him the information um, and they are allowed to bring you English materials so they actually brought me like a magazine um, when I was in there And they're also allowed to use their power to improve your conditions in the prison or the jail. So that's one thing if I were going to tell the one takeaway that I should have done is I should have gotten them to try to use a little bit more of their leverage power um, to help me out when I was in the jail. Um, Specifically around the time I got sick, if they had been able to use their power to get me better, better medical care, I might not be you know, I'm better now, but there's been a couple of issues I've been dealing with since I've come back to the States. Um, and in hindsight, I would have... Uh,
0: Health issues related to the illness. Yeah,
1: exactly, yeah.
0: All right, well, thank you so much for joining me and for sharing your whole experience. I know it means a lot to a lot of people. Um, I distinctly remember when I first heard the news that you had been um, incarcerated. I was at the Natuki bike shop and there was a group ride and uh, after the ride, we were all at the shop and someone mentioned what had happened to you. And there was a lot of kind of confusion and a lack of clarity around, you know, the circumstances of what had happened to you. And it was uh, very uncertain what would happen and how long you'd be there and how you would get out. And there was a profound collective sense of uh, worry and concern for you because you've been in Chandu for a long time. A lot of people know you and um, it was really terrible to hear that this had happened to you. First thing I just want to say, you know, it's great that you uh, got out okay and that everything worked out okay. And also that you were willing to share this experience. You know, I would have understood if you didn't want to talk about it or didn't want to kind of relive all these details. But um, it means a lot to me and I know it means a lot to other people that you share this information and make it available to educate other people and to maybe help them prevent themselves from getting in a, in a similar situation or, or even in a worse situation
1: yeah, absolutely I think that's uh, that's the most important part is that people should be aware because I didn't know that these consequences could be this serious and I just hope that people think about it a little bit more objectively before they could risk putting themselves in this kind of situation
0: totally alright man thanks very much and well wishes to you in the United States alright
1: thanks man hope we cross paths again sometime soon
0: alright